If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about what does it look like to put a new twist, put some new ideas, do, uh, do something a little bit different with a familiar genre to take a game that is uh, maybe become a little bit of a stereotype and then approach it from a new angle, add some things to it, take some things away. How do you do that? How do you add a new twist to something that people have certain expectations of? And we're talking to Ariel Rubin and Juliana Moreno from the Wild Optimus. Ladies, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. you so Thank much you for, for having us on. Yeah, glad to have you back. You were on the show way back when, many moons ago, with uh, Escape Room in a Box. You had this really cool werewolf-themed game that got picked up by Mattel and then like showed up in all sorts of stores around the country, maybe the world, which is such a really, just an amazing story y'all had and just a really cool game that y'all have been working on for a while. And since then, you have been very busy and working on lots of different games and publishing with lots of different companies. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, several different games that you're approaching from, from new angles, new ways. And so I'm excited to chat about that. But uh, before we get into it, let's get a kind of a, who are you? How'd you get into game design? How'd you work together? Just in case people didn't hear that episode way back when. And Ariel, let's start with you. Well, let's see. Juliana and I started playing escape rooms together like way back. Um, and I, I should preface here and say Juliana had her escape room team that I was not on. Um, but eventually she started inviting me when people dropped out. And eventually she decided, she's very competitive, we're both very competitive, um, that I was good enough to join her A team. And so we were playing all these escape rooms, but at the time they were generally in very bad neighborhoods um, and they were expensive. And we were like, well, maybe we'll try to do one at home. And we looked to see if there was any we could buy and there were not which was crazy to us because like, it just seemed like the board game you know, audience and the escape room audience had to have so much overlap. So we thought, well, maybe we will try to make a tabletop escape room game. And so we did, uh, and we are, you know, crazy people. So we like just did all of the research and did an insane amount of play testing. And we um, created a game put it up on Kickstarter. And then the Kickstarter basically blew up. We got uh, like seven times our funding goal, sold thousands of copies of the game. 
um, and caught the eye of several game and toy companies who approached us and were looking to license the game. And we ultimately ended up licensing it to Mattel, uh, who has since put out the game um, and turned it into an entire series of games. So we had the original, there was the original, the OG, the Kickstarter version, and then Mattel put out their version of the werewolf experiment, which is very similar. Um, And then there have been other games in the line that we've had the opportunity to design, some of which we'll be talking about today. Uh, And it's really launched our its entire gaming and puzzle crafting career. So now we do a lot of tabletop games, but we also work in uh, theme park consultation. We do a lot of marketing and press events for film and television shows. We work with music festivals and historical sites and conventions, basically anywhere that could be improved by adding in more gameplay, more puzzles, we love to come in and find a way to do that. So that is uh, what the Wild Optimist does. Very cool. And I'm just so glad to see how y'all's careers have, have just blossomed and you're doing some really cool things now. And I'm excited to see the things that uh, y'all are working on for the future because I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to be some uh, some awesome stuff. And so, yeah, let's, let's dive into some of the games you've been working on and just different things you've learned along the way as you've been trying to do new things. You know, I think that's one of the things a lot of designers run into. They have an idea. It's like, yeah, but it's kind of the same as all these other ideas. And so how do you stand out? How do you make make it different with so many games coming out on the market every year now? You know, how do you put a new twist onto that? So I think a lot of people will benefit from this conversation. But before we get into the deeper things, like what are we talking about on the surface? So when you say put a new twist on something familiar, what does that mean? Juliana, let's start with you. Sure. So our company mantra, when we had to really boil it down to what are we trying to do, is we are looking to find new ways to play. But it's very intimidating to say to someone, okay, go ahead, do this thing that is nothing like anything that you've ever done before. You know, that's going to be a real high barrier to entry to most people. And especially a lot of the games that we work on are much more mass market games or games for people who might not have necessarily signed up for a game. (laughs) Like they're not like the hardcore, like throw me in, let me see exactly whatever this wild and crazy game is. There are people who are like, oh yeah, I, I like to play a game sometimes. And so you really have to invite them in with something that they understand and something that is familiar. And then once you've done that, you can take off into all sorts of different directions. Ariel and I both come from a screenwriting background. I did more film and Ariel did more television. And in screenwriting, it's the classic structure of the hero's journey that you always start out in the everyday world. You're going to have to establish who your character is in their everyday world. And once you've established that, you can take them in 8 million different directions. But if you look at pretty much any movie, it's going to start out with like, here's their character, here's their day to day. And it's a world that you understand, even if it's like a high fantasy, it's still, you know, okay, they're working as the cobbler in the shire or whatever it is. And so it's a similar idea with crafting games that are new ways to play. You want there to be something that is familiar and fun, and that's going to draw people in. And then once you've established that, you can take it in these really different and fun directions. And then 
Um, to add on to that, I would say like at a very practical level, um, I, what you do is if you say I'm designing a tabletop escape room game or I'm designing a social deduction game or a deck building game or whatever it is, you should go and play a lot of those games because it might you might think, oh, and this, this actually was a classic thing that happened with escape rooms a lot, um, just like brick and mortar escape rooms is people would go and play like a first generation escape room four years, five years in, and they'd be like, I could do so much better than that. And they'd build, you know, something that was the level of like a second generation escape room, not realizing there were all of these escape rooms out there that were at a much higher level. Um, so I think practically, if you think I want to really explore this genre and I want to make something that is new and exciting here, you should, you really should play as much as you can listen to podcasts about that genre, just go on board game geek and like read the descriptions of other games that have those keywords. Uh, so you make sure that you're not saying I have something brand new and actually it's not brand new at all. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's very normal nowadays. Like I said, so many games are coming out every single year. It's very challenging. It's actually impossible to play them all. And so it's, 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 it's not going to happen that you know about everything and every new mechanic and, and new way of doing things, but you can try, you can watch reviews, you can stay up to date on, on various websites and of the new games, you can play a lot of new games and understand what people are doing. So you don't just reinvent the wheel, but then on the other side of things, and this is something I want to, I want definitely want to pick y'all's brains about is being too innovative is being too brand new to the point where people don't get it because they've never seen anything like it. I think that's actually worse than coming up with something that's already been done before uh, because there's no frame of reference. Uh, and one thing I've talked about on the show, I don't know, at some point a while back was Dominion was excellent because it was it was brand new. It was a totally brand new way to do things, this whole deck building mechanism and how to do it. But that's all it was. Whereas now there are a lot of games that are coming out that use deck building as a mechanism, part of a bigger game. And because people already understand how to do deck building, they, they are familiar with that mechanism, then they can dive into these other ideas, these new things. Whereas Dominion, if it had done more than just deck building, I feel like it would have been too much. It would have been overwhelming and it would have been hard for a lot of people to understand. But because it was just one new thing, people got it and it blew up and sold a bazillion copies. And so I think it's finding that, that place somewhere in between where you are coming up with something new that has been, you know, that you are approaching things differently, you're doing something new, but at the same time, it's not so new or so much that's new that players are just like overwhelmed and can't figure it out. And so what are y'all's thoughts on that about finding that place of, you know, knowing what to use the familiar, you know, what to stay familiar with and versus what to bring out something new. Tell me, is that something y'all thought about? Is that something you kind of have these conversations about when you are trying to put a new twist on something, Ariel? Well, yes, definitely. I mean, I think, First of all, Escape Room in a Box, the Werewolf Experiment, was a new thing, right? It was the first tabletop game, uh, first tabletop escape room game. It was the first tabletop game ever. No, um, it was the first tabletop escape room game to market. And you know, when we originally sent that game out or asked people to review the game, a lot of people said, no, you can't do an escape room at home. That's not a thing. It's not going to be good. Um, and some people said, oh, we'll still look at it. And some people said, you know, we don't even want to bother with that. But in terms of what you were saying, look, people were familiar with escape rooms, so then and, and obviously familiar with puzzles. So having a game that was like an escape room that you could go out and play and filled with puzzles, which you could, 
you know, play in all sorts of different formats, had a lot of the familiar in a new format that people brought home. Yeah, absolutely. And so when y'all are thinking through a new design, tell me the, the origins. Like, how does it start? Are you taking, you know, oh, okay, here's a game that you and I have played a million times. How could we do it differently? Is that kind of where it starts? Or, or Juliana, tell me about like the origins of maybe some of the games. You don't have to go in depth yet. I, we'll go in more detail about the games in a minute. But just tell me like origin stories of some of your designs and, and kind of does it start from the familiar and then you start working out new ways to do it or, or tell me about it? So our process, it kind of, it's twofold. Um, one, if it's something that we're specifically designing for a client, sometimes clients will come to us and say like, hey, I want like a social deduction game and, you know, something broad like that. So it might start with, okay, well, what are the needs of the client? Because obviously that is always going to be your your guide rails, and you're going to have to stay within that. So we start there. But then there's also, we start from the narrative of what would make sense in this world that we want to build. What What is this world? And then what are the mechanics and how can we build from that? And then sometimes it's born just out of our, you know, playing all of these games and obviously loving these games so much. And once we've said, oh, you know, I love this, um, but I wish it had this or that. And I think, you know, when you were talking about Dominion, it's, it's so much about building, right? When you're like, this is something and this is something that I love, but what would happen if we added in this extra level? Would that make it more fun? Would that make it a better game? And so just really kind of starting with what you love about it and what you're passionate about and then seeing like what you can kind of do to play with that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's dive into some more specific examples based on your games and any anecdotes you think apply. Uh, I, I definitely want to keep things a little bit general because not everybody's designing an escape room in a box game. Not everybody's designing a social deduction game. And so anything you can speak to there also, that's also going to apply to game design in general. Let's try to keep that as the frame. Uh, but at the same time, you know, feel free to dive deep into any specifics uh, from any, any of your experiences. And uh, let's, let's keep talking about escape room box escape room games in a box escape room in a box games anyway however you would say that <laughs> let's keep talking about that because you designed one of those a while back and now you've got a new one which is called oh remind me what it's called it's like a time travel thing right escape room in a box time drifters and there's kira's story that's and right, isabel's story yep yeah all right so tell me just kind of where you started because you've done a bunch of these you've played and designed a bunch of these and then how how do you add a new twist on that genre. And Ariel, let's start with you. So um, Escape Room in a Box Time Drifters really came out um, of the pandemic, right? Because suddenly we were all home and we couldn't um, have game nights, like, unless you were playing with your family, but you could, we couldn't have the game nights like we used to have, um, you know, the world shut down. And, you know, we got on the phone with Mattel and there was an idea that we should do a game, you know, do an, a new escape room in a box game. And, you know, the things that I think the escape room in a box brand does, which is it has like physical, we, you know, we always have physical elements and real locks, all of those fun stuff. But then how do we do a game that allows people to play over Zoom um, or over your, your chosen video chat system? And so at that point it was, well, 
What are the limitations of video chat? What does video chat add? Um, what, like, what is interesting that isn't that is would be better over video chat than if you were in person, right? Because you don't want to just say, and we should get into this with the next two games too, because we actually Crimes and Capers and Hello Neighbor we also designed. Um, we did all of our playtesting over video chat and then designed rule systems that work over video chat. So both of those games can also be played um, over video. Um, but for Escape Room in a Box Time Drifters, there was a real conversation about how do we create a game that really the best way to play it um, is over video chat. Um, and so where we started was two normal games. And, and I guess I should just say, so Escape Room in a, um, in a Box Time Drifters is two separate games. And you play, um, you can play one game and you can play the other game. And the, the best way to do it is like two different households play each game. And then when you win those games on your own, it unlocks a third game that is played over video. So that third game that's played over video you are using components from each of the two games and you're really having to communicate a lot with the other team because generally it's structured in such a way where they will have the pieces that you need to complete the puzzle, but you will have the instructions or the information that you need to complete the puzzle. So it really leans into the strength of how do we get people talking to each other. So it really was just very much a everyone's at home, everyone really wants to connect with each other and how can we give them a new and different way to do that? And especially what we love is having the tangible aspect of you know, the actual game pieces that they will have in their hand that they will be working with, which has always been one of the signatures of the Escape Room in a Box line, but at the same time giving them this different way to connect with other people who are all playing the game together. So we were really looking for ways to just have something be an entirely new experience of both solving on your own and solving together. And that was another thing, you know, escape room games are so popular now and they are for the most part one and done games. And so we are always looking for ways of how do we stretch the life of that? I think for anyone who's doing an escape room style game or a, even a legacy style game, like once you've put a component in, once you have the cost of that component there, how do you get the most value out of that component? So you can use it one way for one part of it, but then now when you're dealing with someone else on video chat who's telling you an entirely different thing, how can you use that component in a different way? And that is, I would say, a huge part of designing these games is saying, okay, if we're going to have X amount of money spent on each component that goes in, how do we make sure that we are maximizing them and giving people as much bang for their buck and as many, many... Uh, experiences as we can in just this one box. One thing I, I want to highlight here, and I, th I think it's part of this conversation in general, is starting from a constraint. So you started from the place of, okay, we can't leave our homes, we're, we're stuck, and we're communicating a lot over Zoom or over video call, video chat. How can we design a game around that experience and turn that experience into something engaging and fun and turn it into a game? 
And I think that's a great place to start is anytime you're going to put a new twist on something is to put a, a constraint or just recognize a constraint and then work from there. And so is that, did you have, did you have that mentality in mind at the beginning? Did you, did you talk about that or did it just kind of happen organically or naturally? Oh gosh, I feel like that um, constraint was definitely there. And I, I think Julianne and I both work much better within constraints. I mean, the story about Flashback, which is our second escape room in a box game, is that Mattel handed us like a box of different little plastic pieces. And these were the pieces they could already, they already had um, machines up and running to make because we were trying to get the game out quickly. And they said, okay, like, what can you make with this, <laughs> with the pieces in this box? And so if you play Escape Room in a Box Flashback, a lot of the components can be found in other Mattel games. Uh, some is Escape Room in a Box uh, Werewolf Experiment, but also Blocus. And I always forget what the egg game is called. Squawk, um, I think it's called. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really like working within constraints. I find a completely blue sky, a completely empty board, very intimidating. I think that constraints are great. And if you really have no constraints, uh, one good thing to think about is money. Be As Juliana said, you know, I think with Escape Room in a Box Time Drifters, because we were unlocking this third game and we were trying to come out with two games at once, those games had to be able to be sold uh, at a lower price point, which means, you know, if we were going to continue to have the really cool things of the Escape Room in a Box line, which are these physical components, which Mattel is like so great at doing, we had to figure out how to reuse and reuse and reuse them so we could still, uh, so we could hit that lower price point and have really cool components. And I feel like um, in Crimes and Capers, Crimes and Capers came out of, which is our murder mystery thing, which we'll get into in a minute, but that came out of thinking about how do we do a cool puzzle game or, you know, or mystery game that is primarily paper, but does not have the thing where you're being told you can't open an envelope that you can clearly open, which is, I, I do find fun to play a lot. The, I love all of the other escape room games too, but for me, that's a stretch I always like to try to do. How do we make it as real as possible for the people playing? Yeah, something I've been thinking a lot about lately is how can you use components that you already have, one, to save money, but two, just to, to do things differently because games in this genre don't typically use the box as a component or something I'm working on right now is I was trying to figure out a storage system. So I've got a game called Robomon, which has a ton of these little robots that you can find Pokemon style. And I was thinking through, okay, how do you store all these tokens? Do I want to have a plastic insert? Do I want to reach out to game trays or one of these third party companies and hire them to create, or what, what's already in the box that maybe I could use? Well, what about the punch board? So normally you punch the tokens out of the, the chipboard or whatever, and then you throw it, away but what if you made that a little thicker maybe you made it dual or triple layered and you put the tokens in a certain way so that the punch board actually is the storage solution and so instead of wasting it and throwing it away and it's just you know money you can't get back because it's kind of trash well what if you turn that into storage and just thinking through those constraints right of trying to save a little bit of money but also to use components in a different way different you know this is for storage not for gameplay but still thinking through using these things differently i love how mattel was like here Here's the plastic stuff we already can create. Here's we got warehouses full of this stuff. Make a game out of this. I think that's just such a brilliant way to come at it uh, from a publishing standpoint. Juliana, do you want to add anything else as far as you know constraints and coming up with designs and things? 
I, I think Ariel really covered it. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Well, in that case, let's move on. You, you mentioned crimes and capers a moment ago. So, Juliana, how about you give us the, the rundown of first, what is a murder mystery game? Let's talk about that genre in general, the stereotype, and then we can dive into how your game is doing it a little bit differently. Sure. So murder mystery games are, uh, they've been around, I feel like since the 70s, they were probably really big in the 70s. But essentially, everyone gets a character that they're going to play, and you would have a party and everyone would hopefully come in costume. And then they would be given their own little character like script. And they were very structured, generally. So you know, in Act One, your, your script would say, okay, you have to say these things and ask this person about this and ask that person about that. And then you'd flip the page and you'd go to act two and everyone had to kind of get all their information out and you'd flip the page again. And then maybe at that point, someone would discover that they were the murderer and have to start lying about it. Or maybe you knew from the beginning, but it would still give you like, well, here's the the things you can say and the things you can't say. But essentially it would play out over the course of an evening where everyone was playing playing a role and trying to solve a mystery uh, that would be revealed at the end of the evening. So that's kind of the classic murder mystery party. And they, you know, there's so many of them and so many different themes. Um, I feel like they don't happen quite as much these days, but they're definitely still around. Like I know Arielle, when she was a kid, had some, some murder mystery birthday parties, right? Yes, I did. And I actually, and I want to hop in here with a fun fact that I, I don't know that it's a, true, but I did hear at a conference that the murder, you know, the how to host a murder, murder mystery genre is credited for being the first LARP uh, mm. because this was, you know, getting people together, live action role playing, but this was all, you know, mass markets, just like, let's have added twist to a dinner party. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And well, I feel like the last 18 months have not, has not been a good time for these kinds of games. <laughs> hey, I'm going to invite 15 of my best friends over to the house. It hasn't happened a whole lot lately, uh, which is kind of interesting. The games that you're designing uh, are on like both ends of the spectrum, it seems like, as far as that kind of thing. Well, totally Good. playable over Zoom. All of our playtesting, everything that we had come out this year was pretty much 100% play tested over Zoom. And I remember, you know, we were on panels in the pandemic talking about how this is a great time to find play testers because everyone is sitting at home, bored out of their minds, looking for something to do. So people really got into this play testing and would come in full costume, you know, with the Zoom backgrounds, they would set up re- really fun in-character Zoom backgrounds. So- so, you know, you, you can still have a party game in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> well, and I would say that um, I don't know that this would have happened if we hadn't play tested during the pandemic, but because we did and because people are now used to getting to play games with their friends on another coast or just, you know, further than you would want to drive in an evening, Renegade, for the Crimes and Capers games, um, Renegade Game Studios, who is the publisher, if you there's a code on the box, um, so if one person buys the game, they can tell their friends who are elsewhere, give them the code on the box, and you can and they can download their character materials so that you can play over Zoom. So Renegades really embraced uh, the Zoom aspect or the ability to play the Crimes and Capers games uh, virtually. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And for all the terrible, tragic, awful of the pandemic, it has brought some some good things, some positive things. And one is that it has normalized certain things like we're talking about right here. It has normalized people engaging over video, uh, playing games over Zoom or, or whatever it is, which has opened up a lot of design space that you're no longer having to fight as hard against the, the I guess the question of, well, why would I do that? Hey, do you want to do a murder mystery game on, on Zoom? Well, why would I do that? Well, you had to do that. You didn't have a yeah. choice. That, you know, you didn't, that question didn't exist. And so now it's normalized, the fact that people can do it and they know how and they have the software on their computer. And it's, you know, all those things that they had to learn. Now we can kind of exploit as game designers and use that to our advantage and create some very interesting experiences, especially in these genres. And so that's really cool that y'all were able to figure out ways to do it and have normalized uh, certain things and found a lot of playtesters. That's another good point. A lot of people had to download Tabletop Simulator or Tabletopia. And so a lot of playtesting and a lot of pitching to publishers is happening online now. And it's become a little bit more normal. And I think there's a lot of benefit to that. And so, all right, let's keep talking about uh, this this type of game. So tell me about, so you said you can play it online. So that's a, a one way to do a new twist on a familiar genre. What else? What are some other things you're doing with Crimes and Capers to, uh, to, to have that new angle, that new twist. Ariel, keep going. Sure. Well, I, actually, I'm going to start with um, the story of how this game came to be because I like it. Um, so Juliana and I love murder, like love the genre, obviously love puzzle games. And af- with Escape Room in a Box, we were trying to think like, what's another way to do a puzzle game that we haven't seen? And so we thought about the murder mystery genre. And for us, the things that we, um, that, that we would love to improve, I would say, especially me because I don't like acting that much, was I really wanted to be able to solve a mystery. How to Host a Murders are so fun, but you don't really get to solve anything. You're really on the rails. You know, it's, it's, it's an improv exercise um, with some scripted parts. So what, one thing that is different in Crimes and Capers is that we is that none of the players committed the crime so there is for two of the three games there is a list of suspects and you are trying to figure out which suspect committed the crime and it is none of the people at the table so you all really get to solve the mystery julianne and i of course love puzzles so we did put actual escape room style puzzles in the game uh so in both in all three games, there's a midpoint where you have to unlock something in high school hijinks, which is a 90s high school theme. You have to unlock somebody's locker. In Lady Leona's Last Wishes, which, which is like an upstairs downstairs theme, you have to unlock uh, the uh, woman who has dyed her jewelry chest. Uh, and in... Is it just awards show, Juliana? This one hasn't come out yet. It will be coming out. And the winner is dead. And the winner is dead. Oh, I love that one so much. Right. (laughs) Award show is just what we were calling it when we were playtesting. And in the winner is is dead, you have to unlock the, um, the person who has been murdered, her purse. So there is one real lock, but everything else is paper. And it's these two acts where you have to determine all of this information, but then there's also these escape room style games. So those are the differences. Um, And we, so we had this idea, we created this prototype, we were so gung-ho about it, and then we got very busy and did nothing with it. (laughs) And we, 
had the opportunity to meet Scott Gaeta from Renegade Games. And we were just sitting and talking with him and he and talking about puzzles. And he, you know, he was like, you know, I worked on the How to Host a Murders early in my career, and I love that genre. And you two seem like you would really be the perfect people to come up with some new take on it, some new way to do it. And he was talking about it for a while. And Julianne and I were sitting there just like, just like, oh my gosh, wait, we have this, you know, we just have to wait for, okay. And then as soon as, you know, but he had a, he had a lot of good ideas, um, but we were just so excited. And so we were able to, you know, bring him the prototype like two weeks later, not that much long later. And, and Renegade was like really into it. And so now we have this um, series of three games and they've been awesome to work with. It was, you know, up till then we'd been working with Mattel, um, and then we, you know, quickly got to work with Renegade and Arcane Wonders. And games publishers are just so nice. The nicest cool people. people. <laughs> like, just so wonderful. Yeah, that's awesome. And it, I hope you didn't tell Scott that you already had that game. And I hope you were like, oh, well, we just threw this together uh, two weeks. Like, you know, here, here you <laughs> oh, go. Oh, no, we were enough? not that cool. <laughs> yeah. We were not that cool at all. <laughs> we were like, oh, my gosh. We can't believe you said that because we have the perfect thing. It's sitting no. on the shelf right now. <laughs> But I think that was too a really good, I, I don't know, just kind of a a good thing to keep in mind as a game designer, because I think a lot of times you might come up with something and be like, oh, this is super cool. And then like, it doesn't quite go anywhere. You never know when it's going to come back around and what you were trying to do as one game, a publisher is like, actually, let's do three of these and you get to make three games with those same mechanics. So there's, you know, there's always hope to be found, which I think is a good message. Yeah, for sure. And that's for anybody listening to this. There are so many games I've designed that I finished and I think are pretty good. And maybe I pitched it to a publisher or whatever, and it just didn't find the right home. And so I just put it on the shelf. And so often, a mechanism or that whole game entirely, but maybe I'll change the theme. Like it'll come back around. I've got a game uh, going to Kickstarter here pretty soon called the last stronghold. And that originally was a game based on an IP based on a comic book superhero series that I pitched to a publisher and they really liked it. And they were like, Oh yeah, we want to publish it. And they just kind of led me on for a long time. And so when you mm -hmm. say publishers are like wonderful, uh, in my experience, mm, it's hit or miss a little bit. And so I just kept getting led on. And finally I got so frustrated and just, I was like, you know what, screw it. I'll do it myself and I'll change the theme and I'll, you know, do some different things. And I'll just, I'll bet on myself. I'll stop worrying about waiting on somebody else to call my name or call my number and I'll just do it myself. So that might happen too, where you wait yeah. a while and you go, you know what, I'm just going to switch this up. I'm going to do it myself. Or you find a different publisher, you change the theme, change something here or there. But anyway, the good news is a lot of times if the game is good enough, it will find a home. It'll come back around. You know, it's kind of like they, they say with the NFL or any professional sports league, if you're good enough, they'll find you. And so mm. just go out there and be the best you can. And in this case, design the best games you can. And eventually, if it's if it is good enough, then I believe that uh, the universe will will find a way to bring it to other people to enjoy it. And so that's that's a great point from from y'all is like, just put it on the shelf and just know that it might come back around. And who knows, maybe maybe the publisher will fall into your lap and say, yeah. hey, I need this exact <laughs> game you've already designed. And that's, that's really, really cool. Another thing I want to point out that you mentioned Samuel, something Jamie Stegmeyer has talked about in the past, and it's having a wow component, like having at least one component in your game where people go, oh, oh, wow, that's that's really cool. And maybe it's not necessary. Maybe it's completely superfluous. Or in your case, maybe it's a really cool twist on the genre because you're adding an actual escape room style puzzle, something physical, something more than just cards or paper or whatever, but something 
real. And people go, oh, wow, I've never, I've never seen that before. I've never done that before. And now we're adding another twist, we're adding something else. Is there anything else you've thought about as far as like a wow component or something you, you've done or, or wanted to do that would like be that component? Well, it's so funny because I think of our players as the wow component in the Crimes and Capers line because it is really you know, we've created these in incredibly fun worlds, right? Like it's really fun to step back into a 1990s high school or like a very classy upstairs, downstairs, like the servants and the landed gentry um, sort of roles. And then for me, seeing people come and, you know, some people, as Ariel said, some people don't like to act like Ariel. <laughs> they want to just, you know, solve the puzzles. And there's lots of deduction and everything for them to find in these games. But then we have also had some of our playtesters just truly like go to town with the characters. And, you know, you can't address them as anything else. And they'll, you know, put on accents and keep it up the whole time. And that for me is when I'm just like, wow, this has grown to be so much more than I ever thought it would. And I think that as a game designer, you really want to give your players permission to just play, right? Like you want to set them up for success. Like we've written in, in all of these games, you do get a character booklet that's not necessarily a script. Like, so in the high school one, it's the notes that you pass back and forth with your friends. In the upstairs, downstairs one, it is each character's journal. Um, but you get something that really speaks to you in that character's voice. And all of these characters have very distinctive voices. So we've given them sort of the tools, but then it really empowers the players themselves to just make it their own and and delight their friends and have everyone cracking up. That's so cool. It reminds me of the game I saw recently called Don't Get Got. Have either of y'all seen it or played it? No. Oh man, it's so cool. It's kind of a meta game that you can play it while you're playing other games or you can play it at a convention. You can just play it in normal everyday life. And basically all it is is a giant deck of cards and everybody gets, I can't remember how many you, you get, but anyway, you get these cards that have like a task or an objective and everybody who's playing is in, right? And so what you're trying to do is to get somebody. And so your task might be get someone wearing a hat to let you put their hat on. Right. And so throughout game night or throughout the party or convention, or whatever, you know, you've got a few friends that are in the game and they've got a hat on and nobody knows each other's objectives. And the stack is so big, like and it's so random, the different tasks, like it's very difficult to know what people are doing. And so if you can get someone to, to let you put their hat on, then I can't remember how the point point system goes anyway, but you, you get them. But if you're trying to get them to let you get their hat and they go, wait, is this part of the game? Then they get you. Right. And so it's this very interesting meta back and forth kind of thing. And so it, again, it's kind of a twist on this, this genre in a certain way where everybody's in, you know, you can do it while you're doing other things, it's kind of like you're playing a role. But anyway, um, a game definitely worth, worth checking out. I think it's a new twist on, on kind of some familiar uh, mechanisms as well. I love the idea of playing a game while you're playing a game, mm -hmm. <laughs> of just maximizing all of the gameplay. Yeah, and it makes everybody super paranoid, and you don't know, are you talking to me about this because it's the game, or are you actually talking to me about this? Like, It's kind of funny, the mental state that you get into. <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely one worth checking out. Anything else y'all want to talk about as far as crimes and capers, any other twists, any other things, anecdotes or anything from the design of that one? 
Um, so, you know, we created three games in the Crimes and Capers line, and they all, you know, they have four to six players. You're taking on these different characters in these different worlds, and you are trying to solve an overarching mystery. Um, and so we knew we were going to have that structure pretty much for everyone, but we didn't want everyone to play exactly the same. So in Lady Leona's Will, you know, they're, they're definitely like schemers who are trying to get the, the money from the will. Whereas in high school hijinks, you're all working together to try to save uh, the school fixer who's been framed by the staff. So in Leona's will, it did feel very in world that you might not all be cooperating with each other because some of them are kind of terrible people. <laughs> and so we did create a, um, a second act that takes it from being a cooperative game, which it is in the first act, into a uh, into a competitive game. And one thing that was incredibly fascinating as a game designer to see was that we started off by saying, you can divide up into groups or not. It's up to you who you want to work with. Uh, and what we were finding was that all of the groups, all pretty, pretty much literally all of them, except the one group that was other game designers. And they were like, is there something you haven't seen? Do you want us to try? And we were like, yes, yeah, split up. But other than that, everyone still chose to all work together and stay cooperative. But then at the end, they all said, ah, I wonder what would it have been like if we had split up and if we had gotten competitive. And so we changed the rules to say, you know what? In the second half, you must split up. And it really changed the dynamic and people had so much more fun with it. And so it was interesting to see that people had an instinct to, you know, you're like at a game night, you're with friends, you don't want to seem contrarian and be like, no, nah, I'm going to take all of you all down. They needed to be given explicit permission and instructions in order to be told, no, no, this is competitive. And then they had so much more fun with it. So it, as a designer, it was very interesting to watch and see, okay, sometimes people want to do a thing, but they can't quite do it. And so it's better if you just tell them they have to do it and let it go from there. It's funny too, because a lot of people will default and say, no, I don't want to do that. But then when the rules of the game are that you have to, now it's a whole another ball game, and it kind of gives them an excuse you know, where maybe yeah. normally they are more reserved, but you know, well, these this is just the universe telling me what I got to do, so I guess I'll do it. And you can just blame the universe. And we had a similar thing actually happen on Escape Room in a Box Time Drifters, where originally for that joint game, we didn't really give them any restrictions. But what would happen sometimes is that like one group would just like hold the paper up to the camera and then the other group would just solve the puzzle. And so finally we were like, oh no, that totally disrupts the space-time continuum when you put paper on video. And it <laughs> forced people to have to communicate with each other and they liked it so much more because everyone was so much more on board. So sometimes you have to be like, ah, people's instincts are to do this thing, but they will actually have a lot more fun if we tell them that they have to do this other thing. 
Oh yeah, that's a really really good point. All right, let's switch gears. Let's talk about Hello Neighbor, which has some has kind of an intersection of, of multiple things going on because you have a social deduction game which comes with its own ideas and stereotypes and familiarity, but then you also have a game here that's based on a video game, and so you're you're bringing in a demographic of people who have probably played the video game at some point or on some level and have certain expectations there. So you're actually navigating several different points of familiarity. And so tell me about the design of that one. Whose idea was it to, to do that? Where's the origins? Well, the origins are actually with our friend, um, Joe LaFave, who runs Genuine Entertainment um, and is just an incredibly brilliant person. And he knew that Juliana and I are obsessed with the game Werewolf. This is why our first game is called The Werewolf Experiment. We met over a game of Werewolf. Uh, werewolf is just a, I mean, you should have seen us like at, at a game convention where we got to meet the designer. We just geeked out. It was terrible. Um, but so we had, you know, because we love social deduction so much, Joe had been talking to the people at Tiny Build, which uh, make Hello Neighbor. They wanted to do some sort of card game, probably in the social deduction realm, because they had a sequel to Hello Neighbor coming out uh, that had a social deduction element in the video game. So they thought, well, a social deduction card game would be good. Uh, so he brought us in. And so then we knew we were doing a social deduction game. And the question was, how do we make something different? What you know, We love Werewolf so much, but what are the things that are not our favorite about Werewolf? And... And then what are things that no one else has? So like one thing that isn't our favorite about werewolf is that people die and that you have a narrator. So that's two sets of people who don't get to play a whole lot. Uh, so that is something that we accounted for and changed in Hello Neighbor. But other other social deduction games do that also. You know, Secret Hitler, I think. Resistance, Avalon. Resistance, yeah. There's, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of games that have also accounted for that in great uh, ways although we did want to also. But then I think the big difference is, Juliana, I'll let you go into it. <laughs> the big difference is that I am almost always either a werewolf or a villager. And no, no, I no. Just, Try again. No, 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 Try again. No. Sometimes no. I'm a villager. Juliana. Ariel spreads her propaganda that I'm always a werewolf, but the fact of the matter is the, the stats will bear me out that sometimes I'm a villager. Yeah, this, you are a werewolf a statistically impossible number of times. It's like one out of a hundred, Juliana. But I will say this. I am never, ever a seer or a hunter, like someone with cool, special powers. And that is all I want to be. All I want to be is a seer. And I have literally never, and I've played a lot of werewolf. I have never been a seer. And so for me, the fact that in order to like do a special power, you have to be assigned it from the beginning has always driven me a little bit crazy because I just never get assigned it. And so I wanted a game where anyone had the potential to have those special powers. And so we introduced a trading mechanic into our social deduction game where it's all about 
collecting the objects, because I will say to Hello Neighbor, if you're familiar with the IP, it's so much about the cool objects and how you can put all of those different objects together in different ways and do different things with those objects. So we knew when we were making a game for Hello Neighbor that we wanted those objects to be really central. And so we created a mechanic where you are trading cards in order to collect the objects that you need to then do the special power that that object can grant you. So I just love the idea that anyone might have this special power because in a social deduction game, it's all about information. So you want to see, okay, who's trying to do what? Who wants to collect what special power? And why do I think that they want to collect that power? And also it ups the um, involvement. So when you're trading cards, you can kind of see who's trading with who, you know, are they are they being too nice to them? Like what's going on? And with the trading mechanic, it involves people who might otherwise just be quiet and sit back. But now everyone has to be involved. So it really solved a lot of um, things that had I'd wanted to see do, done differently in a social deduction game by having this this trading mechanic. And I, I want to hit that last point that you said a, a little bit more, Juliana, because it's not just that people. Whenever you play a social deduction game like Werewolf, in, in my experiment, experiment, in my experiment, it's um, we run people, a lot no, of experiments on social deduction. That's true. <laughs> um, in my experience, there are always people who sit back and don't talk. Now, sometimes it's because they're a werewolf and they don't want to draw attention to themselves. Um, sometimes they're just someone who doesn't know the rest of the group as well. Whatever the reason, there's always people who just sit back. And so not only in this do they have to kind of trade, trade cards to get a power, but once they have a power, people do feel like they should use the power they have, which gets... Um, so, you know, this quiet person will then use a power, which will then bring them into the group and get them talking about who they think might be the neighbor, you know, who they think might be guilty, who they think might be innocent. And it really, what we saw is that the whole group was playing in ways that we don't always see in social deduction games. Very cool. All right. So if we were going to extrapolate and kind of back up and just look at game design in general, what would be maybe some advice or some something you could take away from your experience with Hello Neighbor, that would help game designers just in general. Juliana, you have any ideas? Um, so a few things. One is to see what, um, as you're watching playtests, watch for, you know, what what people are want to do and how you can kind of help them to do that. Like one thing that we saw in the game was people wanted more definitive information to come out. So in the original design of the game, you know, it's about getting the keys to unlock the basement door. And in the original design, you would have to kind of place all of the keys and then all of them would happen at once. And um, it was actually Ariel had the brilliant idea of like, what if we do it one at a time and then you're getting more definitive information. So it was seeing from our players that they would kind of get to a point in the game where they were like, well, I'm not quite sure how we're going to get more information. And then brainstorming and saying, okay, people are really wanting this. So what is a way that we can give them what they're wanting um, without, you know, completely redesigning the game? 
Yeah, that makes sense. Ariel, you have any ideas as far as, you know, general game design tips? Gosh, you know, the thing that I that I don't know that we completely um, did as well as I would have liked with Hello Neighbor, um, because our other games require so few rules, is the rule book. I, I still, you know, want that perfect rule book that people just read and understand. And it's just as easy to read the rule book as be taught by a friend. But I, I still think with Hello Neighbor, it is easier to be taught by a friend or to watch the video at the end of the day. And just really cracking that perfect rule book, I think, is so hard. And there are very few games, I would say, that uh, where I don't end up watching the video or just saying, hey, someone else learned this and then teach me. Um, I want to call it Mechs versus Minions here, which is I one of the perfect rule books. <laughs> um, Mechs versus Minions is just a brilliant rule book. Those, they, they nailed it. Like you can just get into the game um, and it's so easy to figure out. It's so brilliant. But in general, like people don't like reading and rule books are confusing. And if I could really figure out how to crack um, a brilliant rule book, I would love to be able to do that. Gotcha. All right. Anything else, anything you want to leave listeners with any other takeaways from your design processes on, on any of these games, Juliana, we'll go back to you. Any kind of closing thoughts? Sure. I mean, just in terms of, I think a place to start from is just what do you, what do you love? What are the genres that you love? What do you love about them? And then see like, is there a way to find that different thing? And sometimes it'll be, you know, smashing it together with something new so that you're like taking two things that you love and finding how do they fit together. Sometimes it's taking something and turning it completely on its head where maybe this is a game that you love and you're trying to do X, Y, Z, but what if instead you were X, Y, Z trying to do ABC, but it's still kind of in that same world. So just saying like, okay, I know that I want to work on this sort of game because this is the sort of game that I love, but like, what are the issues that I've always had with it? What have I always wished was there? And then use that as your inspiration to create a, you know, familiar genre, but with a completely new take on it. Very cool. Ariel, what about you? Closing thoughts? Closing thoughts. Um, design, just design something. Everyone can design something. I don't No, I mean, just like make something and then play with it. And then if you're having fun, have your friends play it. But I think that sometimes designing a game can, you know, you play these games and they're so big and it can feel so overwhelming and just like, I would never be able to do that. So, you know, maybe start with something simple that you feel like you can get your brain around. But I think if, you, you know, if you love board games and you feel like, gosh, I do really want to create something here, you can. You just have to, you just have to start. You have to start and then you have to be willing to like chop at it and cut it and get rid of things that you love and just keep watching those playtests over and over again until it's actually gotten to a place where everyone around you is enjoying it. Yeah, absolutely. Ladies, this has been excellent. Where can people find your games if they uh, want to go check them out or, or learn more. Sure. So everything is on Amazon. Um, but the uh, specifically, if you go to escaperoominabox.com, you can get both of the escape room games. Uh, so there's Kira's story and Isabel's story. 
Um, and then if you go to the Renegade Game Studios website, you can find the Crimes and Capers games there. And if you go to the Arcane Wonder site, you can find the Hello Neighbor Secret Neighbor Party game. And then can I give a little shout out about where to find us? Yeah, <laughs> uh, so we are on facebook.com slash wild We are on Instagram. That's probably where we're the most active at the wild And then we are on Twitter at at escape room inbox. Um, and then we have our website, www.wildoptimist.com. And there's links to buy all of our games there as well. Awesome. Well, really appreciate y'all's time. Really appreciate y'all joining me here on the show. Good luck with all the hundred other games I'm sure you're cooking up right now and everything else you got going on. Thank you so much. It was so great to be here. Thank you. This was great. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting? <laughs>